I, but I am one of the primary recipients uh, because the overflow from what you do here goes into your marriages and your parenting and your families and our church. And I have seen the fruit of women's ministry in my family's life for many years. And so I'm thankful. Thank you for being here. And uh, I don't know all of you. I know most of you. My name is Dan Talcott. I am Katie's husband. And uh, I am an accountant, actually. I am currently the director of business management, handling all the financial affairs at Crossings Ministries. We do mostly summer camp for students and children uh, for the state of Kentucky. And my background is accounting, and I got a degree in Bible and business from the Master's College. So my wife asked me if I'd be willing to help teach, and I said, uh, can you ask Brian? And she said I asked, and he wasn't available. So I said, okay. And she's, I said, well, you want me to teach? She says, well, can you do Isaiah? And I said, okay. Uh, really long book, complicated, and all about judgment. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, but no. There's a lot of judgment and there's a lot of hope, and I've really been enjoying my study. I hope you did this week and will in the coming weeks. Um, I think one thing is that it will help us better understand hope and what are we actually hoping in and where is our hope resting. So enough about that. Let's, get, uh, let's open our Bibles to Isaiah 1.1. Let's get the setting for the book. Isaiah one. One. You'd think I'd already be there. Okay. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Do any of you all have your little handout that I think they gave out? Okay, so Isaiah, this is, I like pictures, they help me. Isaiah is this big, long, blue one right here, coming right in the middle of King Jeroboam in the north and King Uzziah in the south. During the time of the kings, we guys studied this last week, I believe, right? So um, this is the time of the kings. This is the uh, divided kingdom, and he is preaching primarily to Judah and to Jotham. And I'm going to stop and pray for our time before we get too much further into it. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to study it. I thank you for these these women who have studied your word carefully. I pray that this morning you might use it to encourage us, to convict us, and to make us more like you. Give us a vision of who you are from it, and uh, edit my my plans, and and let it be very helpful. And we give this, this morning to you in your son's name. Amen. So really quick, these four kings, right? King Uzziah was the first one. He was a good king. He, was a, he did what was right uh, in God's eyes. And he saw military victories. The country was prospering. Their territory was enlarged. And, uh, but there's this little comment in 2 Kings 15 that says that even though he did what was right in God's eyes, he still did not take away the high places. And uh, we studied in our, and, or you guys studied in the lesson, that at the end of his life, he even took on the role of a priest, right? So he was a good king that did what was right in God's eyes, but he wasn't perfect. And you can see some spiritual decline happening in the country during his reign. His son, Jotham, very similar, says he did what was right in God's eyes, but he also did not take away the high places, the spiritual decline that's coming in uh, the nation. And we know it's coming in the nation because Jotham's son, Ahaz, 
He was one of the wickedest kings that Judah ever had. Um, he built high places in every city, it says. He closed the temple in Jerusalem. Get this. He went to Aram and studied what an Aramean altar looked like. He went back to the, to the temple in Jerusalem and took out the bronze altar. We've studied that, right? You, you don't touch this stuff. You, God is holy. You do exactly what he says in the, in the temple. You do exactly what he wants you to do. Um, I remember Brian teaching about the temple. And Ahaz says, forget about that. I'm going to take this idolatrous Aramean altar and put it in the temple. So this is a bad dude. And that's what's going on in the country when Isaiah is writing. Ahaz offered sacrifices to the gods of Damascus. He even sacrificed his own sons in the fire. And then, at the very end of Isaiah's prophecy, Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a great king. Hezekiah was a good king. Many reforms to Judah. We're not going to talk too much about that because I don't want to give away all the story for weeks to come. But that's the setting. Uh, Assyria has, you can, you can see that the northern kingdom ends in the middle of Isaiah's prophesying, okay? They were taken away by Assyria in 722, right in the middle of his prophesying. He's going to talk about that. What is a prophet? What is the purpose of Isaiah? Well, a prophet was a covenant enforcer, right? We've been talking about these covenants. You guys have been talking about the covenants. Uh, he's a covenant enforcer. He's going to apply the covenants to the current social, religious, economic setting and what's going on there. Okay, Isaiah's got 66 chapters. Let me give you a little framework for how the book's put together. The first 39 chapters, 1 through 39, the book of the king. It's all about the king. The king is coming. It is about judgment. He's coming in judgment and with little glimpses of deliverance. 1 through 39, book of the king, judgment. Four, chapters 40 through 55 is the book of the servant. Mostly talking about deliverance and restoration with some glimpses of judgment. And then 56 through 66 is the book of the anointed conqueror. It is looking towards the glorious future that awaits the people of Judah. Okay, 1 through 39, book of the king. 44 through 55, book of the servant. Focusing on deliverance and restoration. Then 56 through 66, book of the anointed conqueror. What, I, w- I want to give you a statement that's kind of the overall message of the book. We know what the point of the book is now. As we go through it, we're going to see this weaved throughout. I stole this from Dr. Todd Bowen. He says, this is the, the message of the book. Israel must trust God because depending upon the foreign nations will only lead to exile. Israel judgment does not invalidate the covenant promises. For the Lord will raise up a righteous individual to suffer for the sins of the people in order that he may establish a kingdom of lasting peace with them. Okay, I'm going to read it again. Israel must trust God because depending on the foreign nations will only lead to exile. Israel's judgment does not invalidate the covenant promises. We know about those. We know about those covenant promises. This judgment won't invalidate those. For the Lord will raise up a righteous individual, a seed, an offspring, to suffer for the sins of the people in order that he may establish a kingdom of everlasting peace. It's like, God, everything that you guys have been studying, it's like the whole gospel, right? God's covenant promises are kingdom promises. Um, okay, so today, we're going to look at three things. That's my background and setting. Now we're going to look at, at three things. Number one, we're going to look at Judah being guilty. The first five chapters of the book, we're going to uh, look at why is Judah guilty and that they deserve judgment. We're going to look at chapter 6, Isaiah's call and commission. And then we're going to look at chapter 7 through 12, a Davidic rule will rise from the exile. 1 through 5, Judah is guilty. Chapter 6, Isaiah's call and commission. And then 7 through 12, a Davidic ruler will rise. Okay, chapters 1 through 5, Judah is guilty and has not kept the covenant. These themes are weaved. Isaiah doesn't follow and say, okay, I'm just going to say one thing and then say the next. 
you've seen it in your study already. It's like back and forth and back and forth. So hopefully we can synthesize it and make some sense. The first thing we're going to do is we're going to talk about seven ways in which Judah is guilty. What have they done wrong? In chapter 1, verse 13, it says, Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. So the first reason is they were doing ritualistic religiosity, right? They were still doing some of the, the customs they were supposed to do, but they had just tacked it onto their lives. And, and, uh, and were still, uh, while they were doing the, the right things, they were also doing all the wrong things. God can't have any of that, right? This ritualistic religiosity. Number two. In chapter 2, scroll your eyes all the way down, chapter 2, verse 8. It says, Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their fingers have made. So number two is idolatry. These people were idolatrous. Number three, drop your eyes, and just kind of giving us some highlights. Number three, drop your eyes down to chap, uh, chapter 2, verse 17. And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Number three, pride. The haughtiness of man and pride. So we've got ritualistic religiosity, idolatry, pride. Now, turn your, your page all the way over to chapter 5. Chapter 5, he's going he, he's gonna to call them out very specifically with some, with some woes. With basically, uh, you, you have not obeyed me and woe to you. Verse 8. God says, Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there is no more room, and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. These are people adding house to house. These, this is materialism. They were loving their stuff and adding on to it. Next, verse 11. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late in the evening as wine inflames them. Self-indulgence. Drunken pleasure-seeking. We've got... They're, they're materialistic, and now they are self-indulgent. Down to verse 19, or verse 18. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes. It's really this defiant sinfulness. It's just right in the face of God. They are defiantly sinful. Verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put uh, bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. I'm just calling this fools. It's moral, moral perversion, arrogant conceit, and corrupt leaders, but it's foolish. So I've got, we've got religi ritualistic religiosity, number one. Number two, idolatry. Number three, pride. Number four, materialism. Number five, self-indulgence. Number six, defiant sinfulness. And number seven, foolishness. It's just a picture. This isn't all-encompassing, okay? But this is the picture of what Isaiah is preaching to and why they are guilty. Let's read. We're still in chapter 5. Let's read verse 24. Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble, and as dry grass sinks down in the flame, so their root will be as rottenness, and their blossom go up like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts, and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. 
Isaiah likes this term, the Holy One of Israel. You guys saw it in the lesson too. He says it over 25, uses it over 25 times in the book. Um, Dr. Moiter, one of the commentaries I wrote, read had a, I didn't write it, one of the commentaries I read had a quote that I thought was helpful. Holiness is the heart of the nature of God. Thus, in the full reality of all that makes him divine and marks him out as unique, he had drawn near to, and in a very real sense, became the possession of Israel. He was Israel's holy one. I love that. He, holiness is, that's like who God is, right? More than any other attribute, he was holy. And in all of that, his divine, all that made him divine and marks him out as unique, he had drawn near to Israel. And what had they done? They had rejected his law and they had despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. In chapter 1, it uses the similar verbiage, only it says, they have forsaken the Lord, they have despised the Holy One of Israel, and they are utterly estranged. Despising, the the word for the estranged here is like making them an alien. They were like turning their backs on God. In the ancient Near East, you would never turn your back on the king, right? That is even further uh, degrading him and dishonoring the king. It makes me immediately think, uh, uh, th- that list makes you think about our culture, right? But then it made me think about my sin. How do I see my sin in light of who God is, right? Do I see my sin as turning my back on the king and on his holiness when, when I choose to do that? And, uh, and they're all guilty, but we know we're guilty too. And who can, who can possibly stand against God as righteous? Isaiah is going to solve that for us. There is some hope in this, these first couple chapters. We, we don't want to miss that. Go back to chapter 1, down to verse 18. He says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel... You shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. I love this picture. He, he's going to change sins that were like scarlet to be white as snow. Um, I've got another, another short quote for you to help understand. Why is he using snow and wool? He, snow and wool exemplify what is naturally white. The Lord's promise is not only to deal with the stain of sin, but with the nature from which it springs. Man, I love that. That's what we need, right? Is the, is the full-on nature to be changed so that sin isn't a part anymore. But the, the next verse says, but that, that's if you're willing and obedient. And that's going to be the call of Isaiah all the time. All, uh, all the judgment is, a, is just this ongoing call for repentance. If you're willing, if you're obedient. It's like God's covenant promises are on display. You obey and there's blessings. And you disobey and there's curses, Right? Okay, so chapters 1 through 5, judgment's coming. Why? Because of those, those reasons we just went over. Chapter 6, Isaiah's call and commission. And the point here is that God is holy, right? This, this chapter 6 is almost a picture of what, what needs to happen to the whole nation. And I want you to kind of think about that as we talk through the elements. I think you're probably familiar, many of you probably familiar with uh, the, the story of chapter 6 and the narrative here. But 1 through 4 is, is all about God's holiness. He gets this vision of, of God. Verse 5 is, is his own sinfulness, right? And the sinfulness of the people of Israel. Verses 6 and 7 
God's gracious provision of atonement. Verse 7 says, uh, And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. And then what happens? He gets the prophetic purpose. And that purpose here, if we read it in verse 9, And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and, their, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their ears and hear with their, see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. So the purpose of his prophesying is going to be the hardening of Judah. Much like the parables of Jesus, right? That they would, they would actually harden the people that were listening to, to them. Not everybody. There's going to be a remnant. Verses 11 through 13, there's going to be certain judgment. He says, how long, O Lord? And, and God says, until the cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. So this little tiny glimmer of hope. That holy seed, we're immediately thinking back to Genesis, right? Genesis 3, Genesis 12, the seed that has been promised. There is, there is going to be some hope. God is not forsaking what he's said. So on, uh, Dr. Oswald here helps us again. On the, on the one hand, I, chapters 1 through 5 has raised, raised a serious problem. Sinful, arrogant Israel is going to be the holy people of God to whom the nations will come to learn of God. But how can this be? Chapter 6 provides the solution. Sinful Israel can become servant Israel when the experience of Isaiah becomes the experience of the nation, when the nation has seen itself against the backdrop of God's holiness and glory, when the nation has received God's gracious provision for sin, then she can speak for God to a hungry world. Man, I love that. Sinful Israel can become servant Israel when the experience of Isaiah becomes the experience of the whole nation. He goes on to say, the sequential relationship of the elements ought not to be overlooked. Each element leads to the next. So first we've got the king's death in in verse 1. That prepares the way for the vision of God. The vision of God leads to self-despair. Self-despair opened the door to cleansing. Cleansing made it possible to recognize the possibility of service. And then the total experience leads to an offering of oneself. Very helpful. I'm going to walk through that again. It's helpful. This is true of you and of me. Uh, we need the vision of God, right? The vision of God is going to lead to a right view of ourselves and, this, and the self-despair and the self-understanding, which is going to lead to, uh, we need cleansing. And that cleansing is going to then lead to the possibility and the service and the offering of ourselves. Um, that's what you need, that's what I need, that's what Fisherville, Louisville, the world needs. Constantly, over and over again, we're going to, you guys have already been doing this, it's like over and over again, here's God's holiness, and so who are you? Here's God's holiness, how do we respond? How do the people of God respond? Um, do we respond turning our backs on the perfect one, the perfect holy one of Israel? Okay. We've seen his call and his commission. Now let's get a picture of chapters 7 through 12. So 1 through 5 was judgment. Judah was guilty. Chapter 6, his call and commission. It's going gonna, it's gonna to harden the people, right? Chapter 7 through 12. We need to find some hope in here. Okay. He, again, he's weaving together the reality that Judah's going to be judged, but God's promises are going to be fulfilled. And, it, and in 7 through 12, you just see that one after the next. Chapter 7, I'm just going to give you the, the framework for those chapters. Chapter 7 is Ahaz's unbelief, 
is going to bring Assyria. Then you get some hope. In chapter 8 through the beginning of chapter 9, we've got hope. There is going to be a righteous ruler on David's throne. Then you get more judgment in chapter 10. Chapter 10 says, northern kingdom's going to be judged, and Assyria's going to be that tool that God uses to judge them. Then in chapter 11 and chapter 12, more hope. The root of Jesse will bring a righteous kingdom. So judgment, hope, judgment, hope. Let's look at chapter 7. Remember what's happened. King Ahaz uh, had a, what was going on economically and politically was Israel to the north, stand this way, Israel to the north and Syria had gone in together in this alliance against Assyria, right? They're, and they will expected Judah to go in with them, and Judah didn't want to. Ahaz says, no, instead of going with you in league against Assyria, I think they're going to conquer you anyway. I'm going to, I don't know exactly what Ahaz was thinking, something like this. I'm going to get into alliance with Assyria. And so then he, so he's battling against Israel and against Syria, not Assyria. He's battling against those two. Immediately, your warning flag goes to go off, right? Don't trust in other countries. What are you doing? Israel, the name even means God fights for you. You are the one who's supposed to trust God, and then you're going to get the blessing. Immediately, we know he's not trusting the Lord. We know he's not walking in obedience. Um, and well, that's what Ahaz does, and, uh, and because of that, the judgment is that Assyria is going to come in, and basically he becomes a vassal king. He, he's a, a, a small ruler for Assyria for the rest of his reign because he, he was going to trust in them, and it didn't work out so well. Um, okay, let's, let's get a picture. Can we please get a picture of the hope? Please turn to chapter 7, verse 14. I want to, what, what do we see of hope? How do we trace some of the hope through these, these chapters? These are very familiar verses, but let's, it doesn't hurt to read them again and re- review. The sign of Emmanuel. Verse 13, this is right after, or verse 12, Ahaz says, I'm not going to ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And then, and he should have. He should have asked for the sign. It was, it's clear from the, from the scriptures that he was not doing what God wanted him to do. So then in verse 13, he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God? You're wearying God. Verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Flip over to chapter 9, verse 6. Again, very familiar verses, but what do we learn about the hope? What do we learn about another child? For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. What, uh, what is the meaning of the emphasis upon this person as a child? Dr. Oswald says again, surely it's for two reasons. First, it emphasizes that the divine ruler will not merely be God, but although partaking of the divine attributes, right? He's going to be mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He's got divine attributes. Will most will have the most human of all arrivals upon the earth, namely birth. The expected perfect king will be human, 
and divine. We've already been saying that. We need this king, and this king is going to be a true human king, but he's going to be a divine king. Okay, let's, get, let's, let's keep moving. Chapter 11, verse 1. Another, another note. Who is, who is coming? Who is, who is going to do this? Verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. Verse 10 says, In, the day, in, the, in that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples. Again, we know, we know what this is referring to, right? This is the Davidic king. Uh, we see we see the um, the reference to David. We see that he's going to bring perfect peace. He is going to rule as a king. He is going to pr- have perfect justice and righteousness, and it's going to last forever. A little bit more color on what was already told to us, what we've already known. Um, and this one is he's actually referenced as the stump of Jesse or the root of Jesse. All the kings in in First and Second Kings are always compared back to either David or David's sons or grandsons. They, they walked in the ways of Jeroboam, right? Um, but this one's referenced back to Jesse because this is going to be another David, right? This is going to be the true David. This is going to be um, not like those other kings that you've had. This is going to be the real Messiah, the real king. This is familiar. I was trying to think, how do we... How do I synthesize this? We, we, we kind of know some of these, these promises. And I, I was putting myself in, if, if I was in the, the time of Judah, and uh, I've, I've got judgment coming. Uh, I know it's coming because of my, and, and my collective, our country's sin. What's the response? What, how do I view this? Well, hopefully we respond in re- repentance and faith, changing our ways. Um, but I think... I think for me, what, I, what stood out was the hope. What am I looking for is hope. I know the good times weren't coming. I know the bad times were actually going to be coming. And these people didn't see in their lifetime that hope restored, did they? Uh, yet, that's still exactly what Isaiah's message is to them. God is not going to forget his covenant promises. He is not. He is going to fulfill them. He's going to fulfill them exactly as he's planned. Judgment is going to come, but this hope is there. And I think about how I think about my hope and what takes the most of my thought process, which is more like I need to find a car and I need to, are my kids going to have a better life than I had and how am I going to function? And um, Things that are very much this world, this time frame, that don't have eternal worth. And uh, my anxiety builds up. And if this was what I remembered, if I remember this hope, I think it would be very... Helpful. Dr. Moyer says, as always, the people of God must decide what reading of their experiences they will live by. Are they to look at the darkness, the hopelessness, the dreams shattered, and conclude that God has forgotten them? Or are they to recall his past mercies, to remember his present promises, and to make great affirmations of faith? And I would add, even when, if that doesn't come in their lifetime, right? Even if that doesn't come right now, that's what we're called to. He goes on to say, these promises can motivate any believer in periods of depression or times of oppression under the forces of ungodliness. 
present problems must be evaluated in light of God's eternal promises. God will be victorious. The Messiah will reign over all the earth. Nothing will stop him from establishing his kingdom. Turn to chapter 12. Let's end with this. This is, uh, it, it says, the very first line says, you will say in that day. So when God comes and restores and makes it right, Judah's going to say in that day. Verse 1, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. We, we can say that too, right? His anger is turned away from us, that he's comforted us one day, ultimately. Verse 2, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. And sing praises to the Lord. For he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy. O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. I want to have that kind of a heart, right? Heart of thankfulness. I, I know it's not happening in my day, but that my hope is not fixed on today. My hope is fixed on then, when it, all the wrongs are going to be made right, and I can be thankful, and I'm going to, there's, there's going to be joy welling up from the waters of the wells of salvation. Let's, let's pray. Father, thank you for hope that you provide. Thank you for hope that we can trust. Thank you for promises that are always uh, faithful and that you don't forsake your covenant. You don't forsake your promises. And I pray that we would be people who claim those promises. I pray that you would use your word in Isaiah to encourage us, that that would be where our hope is and that our, our joy and our <laughs> our satisfaction, um, the things that we desire would not be based on just the things that we see in our circumstances, but we would make, we would be people who remember your promises and make great affirmations of faith. We need your help to do that. And we pray this only in your son's name. Amen.